Todd Matthews. Welcome to Crawl Space. How are you tonight? I'm good, and how are you guys? Good, now that we're through the technical difficulties. I'm still irritated. I'm still irritated. Yeah, I can I can understand. I've been there, done that. Try not to come off as too aggressive after this. I'm sorry. If <laughs> I'll pre-apologize. <laughs> um, yeah, let, let's change the subject right away. What what is it that you do, Todd? Oh, what I do officially, I work for the Department of Justice. I'm the director of communications and case management for the system. So I deal with a lot of the media like you guys, as well as I manage a team that handles the case management of the day-to-day caseload with missing and unidentified persons. Very interesting. Now, this is something that you never intended to get involved in, right? No, it was sort of an accident. I didn't intend, if I I tried to get where I'm at today, I probably would never have made it. It was, uh, there was no college for this at the time. It was uh, just what I experienced in the real world that uh, directly applied to what I do today. What do you do on a, on a day-to-day basis? Well, the morning starts usually very early. I get a lot of communications that come from help desk. So the questions that people email during the night, they're filtered through our IT group and other people in communications as well as Department of Justice. And I get a lot of things that are filtered to me that either answer the question, uh, fulfill a request, uh, reroute somebody, or basically do an interview just like this one. Is this something that you do from home? Yes, I actually do do this from home, and I don't think I could do it any other way because it is such a consuming part of life. I don't really have time for uh, transit, you know, uh, to to go back and forth from work, and the days go long. You know, you can't uh, do something like this. You know, this is sort of a uh, a later after a later evening type of interview. It would be hard to set these up if you were in a traditional office setting. Yeah, exactly. Um, I noticed that you have a, a slight accent, and I'm not sure if I can place it. This isn't something. Uh, where Where are you from? I was actually going to say the same thing. I thought you guys had an accent. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Where this is normal. I am actually on the same property that I lived on when my parents uh, gave birth to me here in Livingston, Tennessee. Uh, I live within the same, for 46 years now, I've never left this area permanently. We have just released our interview with Deborah Halber, who wrote The Skeleton Crew, and you're featured pretty heavily in that book. It's about amateur sleuths. If if the listeners haven't read it yet, I suggest you go out and pick it up and uh, give it a give it a read it's incredibly interesting especially for people out there who are potential or current amateur sleuths um how did you meet her how did that how did that all get started because she gets right into where uh where you came from yeah i guess what, what why are you in the book i guess is is the question i i think the audience wants to know first i think we're scattered all throughout the book it begins and ends with the the, the story that i worked on the tent girl story uh and we're scattered all throughout i remember getting a phone call from her after she saw a Jane Doe, the Lady of the Dunes, in her area, uh, which sort of, uh, when she got online and started doing a little research, she found out about the Tent Girl case, which is the first case that was solved using the Internet, which I accidentally did. And it brought her directly here, and we had a phone call, and she has a heavy accent. She came here. We took several trips together. Uh, basically, I had to, you know, it's, it's easier to show somebody than tell somebody. And she made a lot of visits with people that I've worked with for decades that I've never met that she actually got to meet him in person. Now, let me just back up for a second, because you you just said that you uh, solved something accidentally, something about Tent Girl. What What is it that you mean? 
Well, and it's featured very heavily in the book. Uh, this was a Jane Doe that was discovered in 1968 in Georgetown, Kentucky, by my future father-in-law, Wilbur Riddle. Uh, it's two years before I was born. Um, they moved to Livingston, Tennessee. They just changed states. Came here in 1987. I first heard of the Tent Girl story from my future wife. Uh, the story kind of stuck with me. She's a Jane Doe called the Tent Girl because she's wrapped in a canvas tent wrapper. Uh, like you would store a tent with a circus and cast out on the side of the road. That story kind of stuck with me, and I spent the next 10 years of my life trying to find a way to send her home. Uh, the information superhighway at the time was blacktop. You, you literally had to drive there, go there. So there was hundreds of miles driven uh, to try to find a piece of information to identify that girl. And when I say accidentally, I didn't know what it would unravel when we started doing this type of work. I thought there would be a new funeral, a name on a headstone, a family that had some resolution. It would all be over. I had no idea that was just the beginning. Wow. You just you just went through that in a really efficient manner. How did you get – when did you first hear about her? You said it was from your future father-in-law. You know, I met my wife-to-be at high school, and it was nearly Halloween. That was the time of year it was. Ghost stories were being told during study hall where we did nothing, and she mentioned – her dad had found a body and she was an urban legend in their community. And there was something about that moment that stuck with me for a very long time. Still today, uh, it seemed very familiar to me. Uh, it sounded like a story I'd heard before and I wanted to know more. She showed me the master detective magazine that, that sort of wrote the story up in a very embellished way. Her dad had carried that magazine for years and uh, she showed it to me. If I had read it not knowing the truth that this really happened, I would have thought it was a made-up fictional tale. Wilbur Riddle was Bart Cranston in the magazine, but I had a living witness there telling me, no, this really happened. And then I had a grave that proved to me, no, this really happened. And what year was this in that you read? I'm, I'm picturing this magazine to be like one of those pulp magazines, and he found Tent Girl in what year? And then when did you find out about it? He found the Tent Girl in 68, and I found out about this story 30 years ago this October. This coming October. Now, do you and your wife continue to share interests like this, like like dark interests? But most uh, married couples, I feel like they have a uh, maybe a romantic story, and not that yours isn't romantic. It's just um, almost gothic romantic. Um, that that's really interesting to me. Well, it become part of life, life itself. You know, we continue a normal, somewhat life, but our life was definitely changed because of the Tent Girl. She's been a part of Lori's life ever since she can remember. And I remember Tent Girl came with Lori when Lori moved here. So they're both 30 year, just 30 year old additions to my life and, and a lot of changes. You know, Tent Girl came as a Jane Doe and now she's well known and has inspired many mysteries. I met my wife as a girlfriend a wife, a mother, and now a grandmother. So we've all been through some incredible transitions together. We're quite used to each other now. Uh, we're at different stages of our life, and Tent Girl's just part of the family, actually, part of the environment around us. Do you and your wife ever have a conversation where she's like, man, I only brought up Tent Girl for conversation purposes. I never realized that you were gonna, <laughs> that this was going to turn into what it's turned into. It, it, we do. That was like a black hole. It, it was like, a, and I don't mean a black hole in a bad sense. It was once it was spoken, we were pulled into it and we went through an incredible journey living in a parallel timeline to what we would have lived in. Our lives are drastically different. Nothing 
is unaltered because of this event in our life. You know, we're living a totally different life and I'm still living on the same family property, but I can, I know what my life would have been without this. Not, not bad, but different. This is a lot earlier than I wanted to bring it up, but it's a good segue into one of my favorite lines from you in the skeleton crew, which is you said, I'm not the person I should be. So what, who is the person you should be? Tell us what you were before you discovered the identity of 10 girl. I, I worked in a factory and ultimately I was working in an automotive plant. I was a quality control auditor before, before the end, you know, you work your way up from the minimum wage up to an office job. I had a nice office job. I left a very nice job, a very cushy job because uh, not that it was high pay and it wasn't, it was 1175 an hour, but I had my own office in a building that was very isolated. I was left alone. Um, Anybody that had that would be a fool to leave it. So, you know, but I had a bigger opportunity ahead of me. So um, that would have been the person I would still be now. You know, I remember that person very well. And now I'm having to deal with things uh, as director of communications, making uh, press releases, making statements on behalf of an organization and an entity of government. Was this an easier path for you? It was intimidating at first, but with everything that I learned along the way with Tent Girl, um, it's been a natural fit. And the guy that actually brought me on board the University of North Texas, I was part of the working group that created the NamUs program, but ultimately I worked for the University of North Texas Health Science Center. They're the grantee of the NamUs grant. And when I was first offered this particular position by Arthur Eisenberg, who was the principal investigator, uh, I even told the man, I said, these shoes are a little big for me. Because, you know, you're dealing with people that have PhDs and I've not been to college. And he honestly said, You'll grow into them. What a great thing to say. And uh, I had to. You know, I had no choice. It was sink or swim. You either fall into this role. If I didn't love this job and feel like I was in a natural environment, this would be the worst thing I've ever done in my life. It would be horrible because it is so demanding. Um, It's like this is who you are. This is not your nine-to-five job. This is who you are 24 hours, seven days a week. Right. So it wasn't an easier path. It was just kind of what you felt like you had to do more familiar i will say that i think my surroundings are more familiar and i i worried you know when you walk down that through a different door that you know usually people that are highly educated go down and then you're not you didn't have that background but i realized my college was the 10 years that i tried to send tent girl home i went through the same real life experiences as other people learned in a classroom i learned out there and so far it served me very well can you take us through the, uh, the, the that 10 years, that, that tough time? Um, I love the visual of you chose a path that, well, no, that chose you. You didn't choose the path that you, Tent Girl found you in a way. Can you can you take us through that 10 years and, and the struggles? And Yeah, at first it was, uh, you know, it was, it was curiosity that, that you keep looking. And then you ask to see a magazine. You ask to see newspaper clippings. Uh, uh, you drive to a library in Scott County, Kentucky, where my wife's from. I started to gather and sort all of this information. You know, it was I had to know a little more. There had to be a clue as to who this person was. And in the background running, there was a growing up. I remember, I, you know, I had a brother and sister that passed away very young. They were infants, uh, one when I was two years old and one when I was eight years old. And I remember that. I remember very well. And we actually own the cemetery where they're buried. So my family are caretakers of that cemetery. 
so growing up, we we cared for the cemetery in which my brother and sister was at, and and you know I saw their names on a grave, and I felt like Tent Girl. I related to her in a way. She doesn't have that, you know. She doesn't have siblings or children or parents that know where she's at, so they can't visit her. Uh, I couldn't bring her back to life, but I could make her at least as well off as my siblings were because I still cared about them. I can see that Tim really wants to ask this question, so I'm gonna we we're gonna come back to that. But I saw Tim's face light up when you said something, so go ahead. I'm just uh, I first off, I'm I'm really sorry to hear about your siblings. That that is uh, awful. Um, but uh, it it seems like you've been surrounded by death your entire life. Actually, yes. Uh, that was, and there was so many different things that added up to this. Uh, you know, when I was nine months old, um, my mother's mother was forty, and she died of a blood clot. And, you know, of course, I don't remember her, but I know how she felt when I had my own grandchildren. When I actually saw my firstborn grandchild, uh, I knew what he was to me. And that changed my mom's life. They had to grow up a lot sooner than they needed to. They didn't have a mother that did what my mother did for me, you know, taking care of my children while I worked. Uh, They had to stay home and take care of their children. So it it dramatically affected our lives. It made us closer, um, but it makes you more vulnerable in a way, too. You're, you're sensitive to things that maybe other people don't have to deal with. Would you say you're obsessed with death? No, no, not at all. I'm just comfortable with it. It just, uh, it is what it is. It's part of life. That's a great way to look at it. And it truly is, you know, that's not just a, a, a fairy tale way of looking at it. It is, it's, it's the last chapter of life. That's it. You just have to get used to it. And the thing about how it relates to missing persons, um, Missing is worse than dead, so I do know that. I, I think humans can deal with the final chapter, we're all going to die. Uh, we, we have a way, a mechanism in your body, uh, in your mind, we deal with it. You, you grieve for three days, you have to deal with it. It's not easy and you never forget, but you are able to move on. Families that have missing persons, they don't get that final disposition. We are not programmed to not know what happened. It's easier to know that somebody's dead you visit the grave and it's a natural part of life than to just be absent with no explanation whatsoever. So to think of knowing somebody's dead, you're better off. Honestly, that's the way it really is. When they're missing, you don't know, did they, are they hungry? Uh, did they die horribly? Are they dead? Are they being held? Are they waiting for me to come and save them? Uh, there's all these things that's going to naturally go through your head and it gets worse at night when you're trying to sleep. I know that, but once it's done, it's done. They're at peace, and there's nothing more you can do about it. Nothing can change it. But the thing that you did, which is impressive, is you – I mean, we've talked to you outside of this interview, and you have an extraordinary sense of humor. You have an extraordinary way of handling this dark subject matter. Uh, you had a couple of funny stories that we'll get to hopefully later on, but – um uh, let's go back to Tent Girl. Let's go back to Tent Girl because I think that that was a really, really nice way to encapsulate everything. You said something earlier about there was no internet highway. The highway was paved. Is that what you said? Or the highway was asphalt? Asphalt highway. Yep. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about that. How do you, once you start getting into this mystery, how do you, how do you research it? We have so many people out there that, that, have no idea that what microfilm was or microfiche. See, they do it the easy way nowadays. Then it was the hard way. So, and, and I didn't know any better. There was no other way other than to drive and ask questions. Uh, talk to old newspaper reporters, people that have retired. You track them down because they wrote articles back in the day. 
ask them if they remembered anything extraordinary. And sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. Something that might have made a difference or any strange phone calls you might have got from somebody that might have made you feel like you had a clue. And, you know, really, there was really nothing that really added up to anything. Um, and I remember I was at a Dairy Queen in middle in the middle of Kentucky on one of our trips, and I saw uh, WLEX was online. They had their very first website, and it was on a sticker in the window of the Dairy Queen. And that was where I went because we had just got the Internet, and, you know, you're, you're trying to find things. You know, I'd look for the tent girl for several, several months, you know, even a couple of years online, and I got the idea from WLEX to contact the station. You know, maybe if I contact the station, they'll run a story about this mysterious grave. And and that's exactly what I did. You know, I contacted the station. I spoke to John Wesley Brett. He was uh, the first guy that ever interviewed me. And uh, I created a website for Tent Girl. It was the very first Tent Girl website where I took all the information I'd gathered, uh, the image that we had, the information that I had from my father-in-law, the mix from Master Detective and all the newspaper articles, and pretty much just made a wanted poster for the dead. That's what I did, and uh, he suggested I have an interview with the local newspaper first. So Georgetown Graphic, uh, Byron Brewer was the first newspaper interviewer that interviewed me. He had written several Tent Girl stories, and uh, John Wesley Brett with WLEX uh, told him, maybe you need to feature this, and we'll do a bigger piece based on your article. And I thought, well, I'll show them the website, they'll feature it, and then the family will contact me through the website, and that didn't work. So that was probably in November of 1997. And it was just, you know, I, I always felt like somebody's going to come to me, build it, and they'll come to you. So when I realized nobody's picking up on this, I kept looking. And it was January of 1998 that I found sister last seen in Lexington, Kentucky, five foot two, a physical description. I said, that's her. That's her. So it was Rosemary Westbrook looking for her sister. Um, and luckily, I when I called her and contacted her, I had proof. I had the website. So you don't just call somebody, by the way, your missing sister that you're hoping is still alive is an urban legend in a Midwestern town in Kentucky. Now, who would believe that? You know, But I had proof. I had a newspaper article, a website. Uh, you know, We had everything we needed to prove this is, I'm not a nut, this is real. At what point in this did you start to realize, or did you at all start to realize ever that this was an obsession and maybe you should put, like, pump the brakes a little bit on it? Oh, I did several times because, you know, back in the day, uh, you know, we take for granted uh, long distance is unlimited and virtually nothing now. At the time, you know, it was so much cents per minute. When you're making minimum wage, you get a phone bill that's $150. You know, you got to hide that bill from your wife when it's coming in because you have to explain why I called somebody. So we don't know if we're going to buy a coffee this week and you have a $100 phone bill. Hang on one sec. Uh, some of our listeners out there might not understand why a phone bill would go up and down. They probably don't. Back in the day, you know, long distance costed something at the time. So when you made a long distance phone call, it wasn't free and unlimited uh, like it is with, with the cell phone today. That was the traditional landline. So it was expensive to make long distance phone calls back in that time. Okay, so you take you you you're making these long distance phone calls from your house phone, which is plugged into a wall connected to these lines that run across the country and world, and you get the phone bill because it's a certain amount per minute, and your wife sees the phone bill. So what do you do when she says, "Hey, <laughs> what's going on?" I'll quit. I'll quit. I promise. I'll quit. 
<laughs> this is the life's phone call. <laughs> I won't make any more. And then you go back and do it anyway. So it's it's almost akin to an addiction. You know, it says, I'll try to stop. I'll try to let up on it. That's the last one. Uh, you know, you go through all that. And it is kind of hurt. It seems like such a small thing today. But back in the day when you didn't have the money for a uh, $20 gas tank ride to somewhere, it was a big deal. You know, and yeah. then I'm trying to find ways to create. How about we go see your mom and your aunt? And then while we're there, I'll stop by the library. And we'll go through some microfilms. You know, that's a win-win for me. But, you know, how many times a month or every couple of months can you do that when you are working minimum wage? So so you're, you're creating vacations. You're creating vacations that can coincide with your research? Yeah, that makes her happy. I had, to, I had a place to put her where she would feel like she got something out of it. But, yeah, it was, it was basically vacations built around research. That's amazing. You had a place to put her while you went to go do it. Keep her but... but with with addictions, this is a, this is like a it's very I don't know ox, oxymoronic I guess with addictions it usually leads to self destruction and and bad things and with your addiction though you're look at where you're at now I mean you you battled through it but I had to win though that's the whole thing if I had not a founder there would have been no way to accommodate that urge to keep going back so where would I be today if I wasn't fortunate enough to find her back in the day. So, uh, and you still struggle with it. Even today, you know, I won't, you know, I have people that have asked me before, so you want to change the world? And, you know, you, you ponder that question when somebody asks you that. It's like, yeah, I, I guess I do. I would like to change the world. I would like to make the world, uh, my little part of the world with missing and unidentified. Yeah, I would like to change it. Uh, I realize I'm not going to handle it on a case-by-case basis. You know, a lot of people brought cases to me. Can you solve mine? And it's like, and sometimes we did, sometimes I didn't, you know, sometimes I was able to help people. But what I had to do was uh, be satisfied that we created mechanisms that can accommodate that even after I'm not here anymore. And that's how I handle it now. It's like, you know what? I don't have to anymore. We've helped build things that will help change things beyond my lifetime. And you, it's just like a treatment. It's, it's okay. I can, I can take it. I'm no longer obsessed with it. I'm no longer going to worry myself to death with it. I know I've done the best I can do, and I work on a daily basis in a routine way of uh, just making the system better, making things better for everybody, and I had to make myself satisfied with it, and I did, and I am. So, um, you know, there's days that you, you wish you could do more and days that you think I've done is more than I could, should have done, but it, it all pans out in the end. It, you know, it's it's a good thing. It made a living for me. Uh, I thought ten girl, Tent Girl was going to financially bankrupt me, but in a way, she she made a living for me. It, it's all being paid back. Do you have a lot of families that you communicate with who are so grateful to what you for what you do? And that's what I meant. I'm not the person I should have been because I know people that I shouldn't have known. I should right. know Jan Smolensky in Connecticut, whose son went missing as an adult. I should not know Deborah Halber in Massachusetts. I shouldn't know you guys, not really, not in a normal course of life. Uh, I probably shouldn't even know you guys, but I had to accept this is my reality. I had to realize that this is not an alternative reality. It is my reality. And I always and you, looked at it like, like an alternative timeline, but I thought, you know what? There is no alternative timeline. This is my timeline. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And you're still at the house that you were born, the property you were born at. You're raising your family there, so you must look out at the property. You must look at your family, and you must literally see this alternative reality. I see where my great-grandparents walked, and I see where my grandchildren walk, all in the same place. 
it's it's the same but different. Uh, you know, we're in a different time period, but uh, it's still the same maple tree. It's still the same bank hillside. It's it's the same. So what is that like? You sort of uh, like like you said, you wouldn't have been in this work. You wouldn't have this job if it weren't for Tent Girl. Um, Lance and I have kind of talk about this occasionally too like we wouldn't have this podcast right now if it wasn't for the decisions that Maura Murray made before she went missing we we never would have gotten into this so it's we can kind of relate in that way that it's still kind of a little mind-boggling to both of us um but but what's it like for you to sort of owe your career to someone who you know you never met it, and it's just exactly like it. When I go through, I still visit. I still stop by the grave like I have for 30 years. I still go by, uh, pay a visit like normal. Uh, to me, she's she's family. Um, my grandparents are deceased. Uh, they had an impact on who I am and where I'm at. It's just, she's just become part of the family. And your family also views her as part of the family as well. My wife and children are so used to her. Of course, she, my wife's known about her longer than I have, so she's very normal. So uh, your your father found a, a Jane Doe on the side of the road in 1967 is normal to her. You know, she's never known life without that. My children don't know what it's like that their dad's not doing what I do, uh, working with unidentified persons and missing persons, uh, finding a way to make a vacation out of meeting a reporter somewhere or uh, a family member of the missing that just needs to have a direct interface and maybe you can help them organize something to help them move on. And that's, that's part of it. You're helping people move on in life as much as possible. And it's not easy, but uh, that's just what you do. You just try to help it, make sure that they know a path forward. Yeah. And that's a, that's a noble cause and um, commend you for sticking with it and, and, and battling it out along the, uh, the, the path that shows you, um, yeah, it's kind of blowing my mind actually how how uh, deep it it gets, you know, and how f- almost philosophical um, it gets, and how you can trace it back to a to certain moment in uh, you know that, that didn't even happen to you. Um, it's very strange. How many other cases do you work on, or have you worked on? Well, there's uh, more. There's around thirteen thousand unidentified bodies in Namus. Uh, around 11,000, nearly 12,000 missing persons in NamUs, and in some way, shape, or form, we've touched all of them. So uh, any missing person that you've ever heard or any unidentified body that you can read about, uh, at some point they've crossed the desk. You know, uh, co- collectively, uh, the entire group, you know, we, we've worked on it. We've done something. We've done something to try to improve it. So I think I had to focus on, let me try to improve it. I, I, I won't try to solve it as the end goal, but to improve it. I can improve it every time. I can't solve it every time, but I'll win if I say I'm going to improve that situation. It, the slightest little thing you can do, uh, maybe format the circumstances so that it makes a better read, so that people understand it a little better. Uh, maybe make sure a DNA sample that wasn't collected gets collected. Uh, maybe make sure a dental record that says x-rays are available. Can you enter the x-rays into the system, the dental x-rays? Not just say they're available, take them out of the door, scan them, and put them in better off so everything we do collectively adds up to uh, i can promise you this i can't promise you i can solve your case but i can promise you i can make it better you're like basf yes <laughs> isn't that something that is really familiar to questions that we've recently been asked everyone always asks us we're working on Maura murray's case and we're working on brianna maitland's case and everybody inevitably asked you do you intend to solve this and 
it's strange because you don't really intend to solve it. Like you said, you, you intend to just make something better. Well, in, in a media, tell me, uh, I intend to document it. That's not Deborah. Deborah didn't set out to solve a case. She set out to document the process, and she did it. Right. Now, did you document every facet of everything that we do? No, you couldn't. It would take 10 books and still writing. But she did a very good job with uh, putting things together in a format. So when people say, what do you do? I'll hand them a copy of the book and say, just give this a read. And if you have any questions beyond this, we'll talk. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. So have you personally worked on uh, Brianna Maitland and Maura Murray's cases? Now, the Brianna Maitland case, where is that at? Vermont. That's Vermont. Okay, there's there's a girl in Tennessee very similar to that. Not not something I will say that I directly handled an order that, that happened in it, but I'm sure in NamUs they're in the system, so there's no doubt that we've done something, documented it, used case management, um, Something, we've done something with it, I'm sure. Now, was there anybody ever charged with the murder of Tent Girl? Actually, it's it's well believed that her husband, Earl Taylor, was the person that caused her death, uh, whether it was accidentally or on purpose. Um, he was the one that took the children and left, and his story was Barbara ran away with another man. Uh, I personally don't believe that, and I don't think a lot of the family believe it, but he's got children that, that may feel uncomfortable hearing you say that, you know, so I'm not, I'm not saying I blame him. I, I don't know, uh, but I do know this. Uh, her fingernails were broken off in the bag. So he might've thought she was dead because she had blunt force trauma. There was a bruise. It was on the skull that they recognized. It was, it was a blunt force trauma to the skull. He could, he could have pushed her down. She could have hit her head. He might've thought she was dead, put her in the bag. Uh, you know, the cause of death was probably suffocation. She tried to scratch her way out of the bag. So, you know, he, he might not have killed her immediately. And then she later suffocated, but he, it was probably him that caused her ultimate death. Yeah, that's horrifying. And what was, what did he worked for the circus, right? Yes. In and out, you know, that was, uh, and I heard, uh, one of the family members called him a carny and I know they meant that in a very derogative way that they, they called him a carny. So I try not to say, call anybody names, but I know that he meant that in a very derogative way. The typical carny is, is the term that he used. Was it a tent that, that, um, is used in a carnival? Yes, it would have been a tent. Uh, some of the packing materials, you know, there's there's the center poles, there's the vinyl flaps, there's there's all this stuff. But it was it was a professional grade tent bag, so it was very much like a a large um, sleeping bag type thing that that he had put her in to dispose of her. And that's that's what my father in law encountered. And your father in law was working that day, right? He was. He was working. He actually drilled water wells at the time, and he was waiting for somebody to meet him. 
and he was picking up the glass insulators. And those you've, you've seen the colorful blue-green glass insulators that were dotted on the ground. They were putting in a new telephone line, and it threw off some of the insulators. And they were even antique back in the day. Even back in the late 60s, they were already of antique. And he was picking those up, collecting those. He'd pick them up off the ground, and he ran into her. I thought it was ironic that he was picking up the glass insulators, and I've got tons of them now. And they carried the telephone line that ultimately brought the Internet through which is what we use to solve the case. So it's kind of like we come full circle with that. But, you know, he saw the shape leaned up against a tree, and we'd been there to that area many times over the past 30 years. And when he nudged it, thought something was in it. He thought it, there even could have been an animal in it, for all he knew. And he said the way that it rolled down the hill, he could tell it had it looked like it had some body in it and not something, and certainly not garbage. And, you know, he cut into the bag, and he, you know, the the sight, the smell, he knew. He knew it was a human. Is he happy with the uh, the direction that you took? What was, uh, I guess, originally his his mystery? I'm not sure he understood exactly how how it, you know, he doesn't, you know, he knows that there is an internet, but it's a big mysterious thing to him, even back in the day when it was uh, new to me as well, but I was a little more comfortable with it. it you know, he could never find a way to access the, the Internet. So it's just like you get in this mystery time machine. You go do something, you come back, and they don't understand how you did it or why. And, uh, yeah, it just – and even now, you know, he's going to be 90 this year. And he was one of the first people uh, Deborah interviewed, and I sent her to interview him uh, and let him have his story. You know, I certainly didn't want to try to compete with him. I, I, I got his daughter and his tent girl. Uh, you know, I, you know, I want him to have his say in it. You know, I want him to be able to tell his tale because he did find the body originally. And um, if he hadn't, have, I wouldn't be here. I know he certainly didn't intend for this to happen, you know, for me to to solve the case and, and build a career out of it. But that's what happened. And, and I hope in some ways proud of it. But I'm sure he don't understand it. Yeah, that makes sense. And was he, uh, were you afraid of him being um competitive about it because you just said something that is interesting to me you said you you got his daughter and his tent girl yeah you think he was a little competitive at first I, th I don't think he understood why people were interviewing me and he was the person that found the body i don't think it made sense to him at first and um and i understood where he was coming from and and i didn't exactly because i didn't mean to do it either you know i thought i didn't intend for all these people to be here uh doing interviews and nobody cared when i was looking for her. i could scarcely get a librarian to give me two seconds of time to look at a microfilm. And now suddenly people are coming to me asking me what I think. That was a strange turn of events for me too. So we were going through a whole different phase. Uh, and I wondered, is this 15 minutes of fame? Is it going to run away? Is it going to end? You know, cause people kept saying that it's 15 minutes of fame, get used to, you know, just get used to it being here for a minute and then it's going to go. But it never left. People never stopped asking that 15 minutes has been 30 years. It's, I mean, it's been 20 years since the, the tent curl identification, it's not stopped. If nothing else, it's it, it's intensified. So people were saying 15 uh, minutes when it was really your 15 seconds of your 15 yes. minutes. Um, yeah. You sent us an article um, about a week ago. Tell us a little bit about, about that case. So there was a second part to the Master Detective magazine that uh, it was called Some Mother's Son. So there was a boy that was found... They said he was a late teenager, and he was mentioned in the magazine, too, with Tent Girl. It was uh, 1921, the body was found, and just like going and finding the Tent Girl's grave, I had to find his grave, too. And when I found his grave, and it was just as described in the magazine, I knew it was real. He was really there, and 
you know, for years I visited his grave. It's mossy. Uh, you know, I'd always go and check on him too, but he wasn't like the tent girl with me. It's not quite the same feeling with the tent girl, but he was a collateral part of the story. So we would visit with him too, thinking there's really nothing I can do about that. And when we made the tent girl identification in 98, the then coroner, his name is Marvin Yoakum. He's passed away since, uh, I took him to the grave, you know, because everything was exploding about the tent girl. And I took him to the grave and I said, here's the other one. And he didn't know about it. You know, he'd never heard of the grave. Uh, uh, he said, do you think you know who it is? And at the time, no, I don't. But, you know, here he is. You know, do something. And and he was right. He said, I think this one's going to be more of a historical type situation. This is many, many years earlier. At the time, it was um, 70 years earlier, more than 70 years earlier. And um he says, there's just really nothing we can do. And I hung it up at that. I thought, well, I guess that's it. You know, there's nothing else that we can do about it. Uh, always assuming that, uh, you know, everybody knew about it by then because I told the coroner. So recently, back in October of this past year, we were notified by the Department of Justice that, you know, the name is Grant's intact, but we're going to stop funding the DNA, the free DNA for missing and unidentified persons. We're going to give that a hiatus. We're not going to fund that this this coming year so People are going to have to pay for it. Law enforcement is going to have to pay for that. So knowing that funding was kind of running short, I contacted uh, Emily Craig, and she was the anthropologist at the time that made the identification with Tent Girl. She confirmed my theory, and she was the state anthropologist. She has since retired from there, and she now works for us with NamUs. So she's part of our staff now with NamUs. That's her retirement job. She came back, and she's given her expertise with the management of day-to-day of NamUs, uh, she helps, she substitutes when people are out and she helps us work on another, you know, special projects, anything that we have, she helps us out with it. Uh, I'm called her and I said, you know, the DNA is going away. Maybe we could give that boy a shot. Maybe we could uh, look at the possibility of resuming his grave, see if there's anything. And she said, what boy? And her husband now is the current coroner. He didn't know about it. So neither of them knew that there was that other John Doe there. And I assumed the former coroner had passed it along and they had all decided there's nothing we can do about it, but he hadn't. He didn't mention it to anybody. And ultimately, that led to the exhumation of that body, which this past Friday, and we did get material out of the ground. We have something that we can test. Uh, and we have since had notification from people. Uh, there is a very good possibility we have an idea who this person is. Uh, there were several tips that came in that we're going to research, uh, some in particular that sounded better. I have a feeling that this, this, this mystery is going to be resolved as well. That's 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 remarkable. So you, this is some mother's boy, and this was uh, about ninety years ago. Uh, I've a couple questions. One question is, how did he die? And the other question is, did you realize that you were being so creative when you discovered, which is inexplicable to me, why any funding would be pulled for DNA testing? When you realized that. Did you calculate that move and say, I got this one here. It's a perfect scenario with 90 years gone by. Did you realize that you were that you were playing this game here, that you were playing this this chess game here? And feel free to answer either question in any order. Well, and it, he was killed because he was struck by a train. He tried to beat the train across the track, and uh, he was witnessed. It appeared to be an accident, so you know he just tried to beat it. It was going faster than he thought, so not sure what game he had going. But uh, was there an opportunity for uh, a stunt to possibly move this case along? You know, I knew that I was going to press the envelope with 
This is your last chance. But now I wasn't expecting to find that they didn't know about it, that they didn't call it. Now, that's what I didn't realize. If they had recalled it and had chalked it up to history, I thought, okay, the DNA is my carrot to say one last chance. This is your one last opportunity. It may never happen again that this could happen. Can we, you know, I wanted to persuade them to do this. And, but there, I didn't have to do that. Uh, Once I mentioned him, you know, it, it was all, everything else was out the window. They wanted to pursue it. And they did. They pursued it very well. And I really think that we're going to be able to go back and add his name to that stone someday very soon. You sent us that article on Friday of last week, and you're saying right now, this is Thursday, less than a week later, you're probably going to be making an identification of this 90-year-old mystery. 96 years old, and it will be the Scott County coroner that will make that decision. But we have, we have heard, from, and there's more than one. Now I've opened up another Pandora's box. We heard from more than one group of people that said there was this person missing from this time period. There are more than one possibility, but, you know, there's strong possibility. Some are stronger than others. I feel pretty confident about what we've got, but ultimately the coroner needs to make a decision with what he wants. But uh, I really feel confident that we're going to be able to finish what somebody else started. Uh, You know, the townspeople did. Think of this. The townspeople have took care of this boy for generations now. Back in the 20s, they buried him in a nice casket dressed him nice, buried him, give him a nice tombstone. This past Friday, uh, county officials were there, and we brought him out. And we're going to do everything we can scientifically, if necessary, to identify him. And a lot of it, you know, people would say, well, what's the point? It's not a homicide. Why would we worry about a mystery that's 96 years old? And one of it is an example. An example to people when they cause people to be unidentified, that, Technology is getting better and better. If I can go back nearly 100 years, what chance do you think you have to hide a body today? It's going to catch up with you. So, I mean, technology is getting better. We're being able to go back and do things. It's testing the limit of a lot of different technologies. And another, uh, you know, like why does it, you know, it's not a homicide. There's still some unfinished business with this particular case. You know, everybody deserves, if possible, to have their name put on their tombstone. And I think it's important that we do that. So... It's you know we finished we finished the job that they tried to do years ago. I honestly feel like we're going to finish it and say the end. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, now, in on that article, we we both read it, uh, of course, this past weekend. But um, in the comments section, people started sort of arguing with each other, and one person said, um, you know. Let, let the boy rest like why would you exhume him after so long just let him rest and someone started arguing with them and then it went back and forth but obviously you don't chime in on the message board but what do you say to people who say let let, let the person rest in peace well that's why i had to get ahead of the message like i'm not going to get an argument on the boards you know and and give them somebody that you're never going to convince otherwise a platform but i try to think of this uh saying things in advance. What if this was yours? What if it's a leaf missing off your family tree? And you realize that's been a terrible mistake. What if somebody thought this young man abandoned them and left them? And that was the mark in history. You know, uh, great uncle Johnny ran off and never even came back home. Well, maybe he couldn't. So there's still a lot of resolution here. You know, there's missing pieces on my family tree and the stories aren't so nice. You know, you hear things uh, that's like, Oh, he, he left and didn't care anything about his kids, and he ran off and never came back. He abandoned his family. Maybe somebody thinks this boy abandoned his family. He didn't. He honestly did not abandon his family. 
So I think we're going to finish some actions that were started back in 1921. I think we'll be able to finish it up. And I think it's important that we do that. For one, to show the technology is very possible. And we didn't hurry up and spend money. Uh, I heard people say that, oh, funding's running short, so we're going to hurry up and spend it so uh, before it's wasted, you know, wasted money. But I, myself and Emily Craig, we both worked on this case on vacation. You know, NamUs doesn't do exhumations. NamUs doesn't do that. Uh, so we both work voluntarily. This was at no cost to name us the trip that we took to Georgetown. She actually lives there. So, you know, you know they went to some trouble in time and it cost name us nothing. It cost the federal government nothing. The boy himself is just as entitled to the DNA testing as anybody else. If there's somebody unidentified, he is just as qualified to have that as anybody else. So uh, and the publicity that it got. Now, think about this. Uh, the exposure that person got drew a lot of attention to a lot of other cases and the plight in general, just like Tent Girl did. Tent Girl made people realize that there's a huge problem. They call it the silent mass disaster. It brought it to the forefront. You know, for me, I thought there was one Jane Doe out there until you send her home and then you see all these lights popping on. That's just when the internet was just popping up, you know, and I realized later there are probably 40,000 of them out there. And I find part of that, you know, we've documented several thousand, maybe, 11 to 13,000, but there's upwards of 40,000. And this guy's one of the, the the missing links, one of the unaccounted for 40,000. He, he's one of them. Right. He's only one. And um, yeah. it's interesting that we want to know. And it's almost like that's why we're human. Curiosity is part of the, the human condition. And that's why we want to know the answers to these mysteries. So that's why it's important to do because we are human, because that, that's what sets us apart. It's easy to say, what does it matter? You know, it's easy to say that. But, uh, uh, you know, when people ask me, what science are we going to use to resolve this mystery? The biggest science is, is, is media. You know, that's, that's what I told a reporter that actually interviewed us. She said, what technology do you plan on applying? I said, pretty much you. That's what we need. You know, it's not always DNA fingerprints or, or, or dental records. It's not always that. Sometimes it's just awareness and somebody saying, you know, my cousin Johnny was missing about that same time period. You know, it might not be forensic science that helps wrap this up. That whole being like intrinsically captivated by mysteries, I, I think that that is a really underrated element in human behavior in in just like being human what what tim was was getting at there it, the, the, when you look at mysteries like you looked into tent girl now you're talking about science and dna and using the media and using the political system mysteries are a beautiful thing that uncover science and and art and media and and it, and you happen to bring closure to family members to, you know, you put that, that leaf back on the family tree. It's a, it's a, it's a remarkable thing. It's funny though. You know, when Deborah first approached me, she, I think, it, I don't know if she recalls it the same way I did, but uh, one of the things she asked me was, do you think there's enough here for a whole book? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. There's enough for a book, maybe about 10 of them, but there's certainly enough to finish the book that you're going to. And, and things have changed since then. I mean, since her book has been published, there's been enough stuff that I've witnessed happen they could do another one. She could do a part two very easily. I don't think she will. I don't think she'll want to. I think she got her 
her feel of it. And I hope she keeps doing things like she's doing with you guys, you know, not, not so much for the book sales, but, but for the exposure, she has brought an enormous amount of people back that want to know more about this. Uh, It's been very beneficial. That book has been, you know, and we didn't, we didn't make any money off the book. You know, that was, I never wanted any money from the book. That was uh, the PR from the book was more than I could have purchased. If I had to go buy the exposure that that book gave me, I don't have the budget for that. So uh, I won really well in that book. And, and the way that people reach out to me, I wouldn't be on your show if she hadn't wrote the book. Yeah, for sure. And we have, just so you know, we have a lot of listeners out there who are becoming amateur sleuths. They're online detectives, uh, amateur detectives. They're looking into mysteries. And a lot of them really don't know how to go about doing it. They don't know a responsible way to go about doing it. Tim and I barely know a responsible way to go about doing it other than present characters and interviews like yourself to, to and, and, and introduce them to this audience that we have. If you have any advice for people in, in, in this now who are, who are getting involved, who have been involved, maybe people who are even burning out from the whole thing, what, what would you, what would you, what, what advice would you deliver to them? When I pitched this before, now the uh, the lecture that I that I used to give people was called responsible volunteerism, knowing where to draw the line, knowing where you're going too far um, into part of the investigation, because a great deal of these are homicide investigations. So you can certainly muck something up really easy by you know talking to somebody you shouldn't be talking, and you could get yourself killed. Honestly, you could. You know, I know that very well. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a very dangerous game. It can be. Uh, I've learned a lot from it. And if you're a new person going into it with the instantaneous way that we can communicate with each other now, you can get in trouble a whole lot faster today than I could on the asphalt highway easily because you can interface with somebody, you know, the other side's out there too, just as technologically savvy as we are. So it's it's a far more dangerous world now than it was. And there's people that uh, uh, could lead you on, making you believe that you found a connection that you didn't really have to lure you out. So I want the young people to think about that, not just the young people, but the newbies in it. Don't be lured out so easy. I've literally had people that have showed up at my front door asking questions, and that can be a very dangerous thing. I don't go to any trouble to make myself unlisted because too many people know where I'm at. So I don't try to have an anonymous address or unlisted, but uh, it wouldn't be wise to try to uh, anybody that wanted to come and cause me harm. I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend it. But uh, I'm not going to live my life in fear. You know, I'm not going to be afraid. Somebody knows my address. They're going to come. People send me cards. Uh, you know, I get a lot of mail that comes from people that, that read something. They'll send you a news clipping. And I thought the best place I can hide is right in the wide open. I'm not I'm not going to hide in the shadows and and be afraid of people. I'm here. And, you know, I think I can take care of myself if something happens. I might be wrong. But uh, but just be very aware of that. The world is a very dangerous place. And. And sometimes your theories are something that people are already thought of. I, I have lots of people that will give me a theory with a particular case, and it's like, yeah, we kind of already know that. But I can't confirm nor deny certain things, you know, because it's something you, well, we really can't disclose this. And, uh, you know, because I got the inside view now. I can see from both sides. And I thought, oh, that's why the cops acted really strangely when I said that about Tent Girl, because I'm seeing it from both sides now. So from this hybrid point of view, I came from that world, but I'm living in this world now. I can see both sides very clearly. I see law enforcement that poo-poo people that could really help them. And they're embracing them more now than they used to. Uh, I saw a renaissance where there are people that, you know, like, hey, they actually do really good work. I had law enforcement approach me. The government approached me. 
But also, we run this now. There are so many cyber suits now, and they're all talking at once, not organizing very well. It becomes white noise, and, and they stop listening again. So I've seen it go through the whole thing. If you all talk out of turn and you have no regular pattern, uh, if you have a telephone conversation or email conversation with me and you post it on a bulletin board, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. And that's a really responsible thing for, for you to say. And I want to make sure that any of our listeners who are listening go back and, and listen to that part again about how law enforcement reacts to an amateur and and don't try to draw conclusions. Don't, don't try to think that there's a conspiracy behind it. Uh, so that was very well put. Um, I do want to get to uh, you said you don't live in fear, but you do live with a sense of humor. We know this. And you do live in the same town that you've grown up in and you know police there. And you told us a you told us a very darkly funny story that I think we should. I think we I, I think we owe it to our listeners for this. Well, and and I feel okay. To, you know, the the, the person that I, I actually graduated with this person, he's passed away since then. And you know, I'd like, this is a way of fondly remembering him. Um, and this was back in two thousand one, back before I had any professional capacity. Uh, I knew there was uh, there was a Jane Doe in Campbell County, Tennessee, about ninety miles from here, and I had contact with law enforcement there. One of the questions I had is, why don't you have a facial reconstruction for that guy? For that lady, I'll say lady, it's not a man. And uh, he said, finances, you know, this is thought to be a drug addicted prostitute, you know, and we don't have funds for this or that. And uh, he said, I, there's no way when you're laying people off in the county, they're going to give me funding to have a facial reconstruction. I happen to know a forensic artist, you know, I'd met online and become friends with. And I said, what if I can do it for free? And they were willing to do that. So quite literally, and God, I hate even from a professional context to hear it now, but Literally, I went and I brought back a skull and a duffel bag here so that I could mail it to my contact that could actually do the facial reconstruction. He's a professional artist, trained forensic artist, and he was going to send it back to the agency. But on the way home, um, now coming through some very rural areas, coming home, and I stopped at an old town, old style grocery store, an old country store. It was closed. It was late at night, and I'm about to drop a coin in the, in the drink machine, and the lights come on. And, you know, I thought, oh, heck, you know, I'm, I'm here. I've got a body in the car and and the police lights around me. I'm in a grocery store. So what's going to happen now? And it was a familiar person. The guy I actually graduated high school with, his name is Sean. Uh, oh, it's you. You know, and he knew about the tent girl story. So he knew I had a little bit of something that I'd been working on with Jane or John Doe's and enough to know that I wasn't kidding if I told him I had a body. Uh, so. He said people had been vandalizing the store, and he said we were just waiting. We were hiding to watch to see when somebody was going to come back, and it's just you. So obviously you're not a vandal, so they were going to go. And I said, hey, I actually do have a body in the car, a skull. Would you like to see it? And he looked at me in a moment of surprise and then realization that I wasn't kidding, and he pretty much left me standing there in the dark. He didn't want nothing to do with it. He was gone, you know, so it's no, I don't want to see it. I don't want anything to do with it. So he was gone. And it was just so funny. But we used that now when I started working with uh, Drew Bruckheimer on uh, The Forgotten. It was a short-lived series on ABC with Christian Slater. Uh, when I got to the point, you know, the show was built on some of the work that I've done in, in, in the groups and organizations that I work with uh, as a volunteer back in the amateur days before Justice Department. Um, 
by the time I got there, I said, you know, your show's a little dark. It needs some humor. And we actually incorporated that into one of the scripts where the artist was trying to hide a skull and it sort of rolls out, out of the out of the package so that you can see it. And the cop's looking in the window. And it just like, so he's like, oh, my God, a skull rolled out and I'm in a no parking zone. And now the cop sees it. You know, he has to talk his way out of that. So that was based on that. That's some of the dark humor that I think it needed because all those shows are so dark and smoky and solemn. And, uh, you know, the real life's not like that. You know, stuff happens. You know, right. moments yeah. happen that you just have to laugh at. And you need to have a yeah. sense of humor when you're doing dark things like this. Um, oh, but you have to. But that was a police officer, right, that uh, you graduated with? Yes, and he didn't want anything to do with that. So he, he was out of there. Literally, I was left in the parking lot in the dark. Uh, but He didn't even look at the head? No, no, he didn't want anything to do with it. No, that was it. Because he, he looked at me for a moment like, are you kidding or not? And then I knew he knew by looking at me that I was not kidding. And, uh, and it's just like, no way. So he was out of there. But, um, but there, there was that moment like, you're kidding me, right? And it's, no. person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter Brianna disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait.